Hi, I'm Dee Reddy and welcome to this bonus episode of Inside Intercom. Today's episode is a compilation where we look back at some of the most interesting chats we've had with guests about remote working practices across the years. We know that lots of our listeners and readers to the blog are probably getting used to remote working for the first time. So you can expect that we'll be sharing lots of content like this over the next few weeks. Stay tuned for plenty of information, tips and insights from our own staff and guests to help you learn the best practices and approaches and hear how Intercom can help. In today's episode, you'll hear from Basecamp's Chase Clemens, Miro's Andre Kusid, Zapier's Wade Foster and author and UX leader Laura Klein. So let's head over to the studio and hear about remote working. Basecamp's founders literally wrote a book on remote working, so they're probably a good place to start with figuring out how to place boundaries between your work and personal life when you're literally working from your own home. We heard from their support team lead, Chase Clemens, that respecting limits and good communication are key. Basecamp is truly a remote workforce. I mean, you have these collaboration tools that are for remote teams, but you guys yourselves are also remote. I mean, your founders even wrote the book on remote working. Uh, A lot of growing companies, the first thing to go remote there is often support. Perhaps it's to cover more time zones, to be where your customers are, or even to go with 24-7 coverage. So thinking about your support team specifically, what's been the key to creating a a healthy culture among these um, team members that are so spread out? The biggest thing for me personally has been limits. Um, you know, it sounds weird, right? But when you are 24-7, when you do work remotely, it's literally, I, I joke around with the rest of my family and say, I can do my job from the middle of a field as long as I have a laptop and I have an internet connection somehow. Um, so it's literally like the job, you don't get like like a snow day, right? It's like, you know, you're, you're, you can always work whenever you want to work. So one of the first things that we always kind of uh, instill in new hires, and something like, I mean, I've been at Basecamp since 2011, I'm still working on it myself, is, is knowing your limits there. Knowing when to turn off the computer, when to shut down the browser, when to walk away from it. Uh, because, I mean, especially with, with customer support, there's always another email in the queue. There's always another chat that can be answered. There's always another tweet that, that needs, uh, you know, an answer. So it, it can be tough to uh, know, like, you know, I'm going to stop working now uh, and just kind of walk away. So that's one that, like, that's one thing that I think is really key, especially when it comes to like being um, a, a healthy contributing member when you have a, a remote team like ours, like know those limits, because if you don't, then it's, it's going to be a world of pain. Do you have to sort of go the extra mile when it comes to sharing information that everyone's learned when they're spread apart like that and not retreat into silos with, you know, the things you're learning from talking to customers every day? Yeah, absolutely. You know, well, I mentioned earlier, like we look for people that are good writers, right? So somebody that that can write and communicate really well, they instantly go up to like the top of of our stack when we're interviewing people for a new job. The reason for that is because you have to be able to communicate in a written form, whether it's talking to a customer or it's pitching a new idea to the rest of the team or giving an update on a project. Like all that happens for the most part via written text. Now, granted, you know, you can do like video tours of a new feature that you're working on or a new idea that you're working on. You can sprinkle in all sorts of images and pictures and things like that. But for the most part, your ability to write well directly relates to how effective you are at being able to interact with the rest of your team. 
you're also doing a lot of this for, you know, not only for the, the moment in time, but also for people down the road that are kind of come back and read this later. Um, so we have to think about, you know, when we're writing up the, the explanation for why a design is a certain way or why the choices we made to do live chat rather than this, you know, whatever those reasons are, we want to be able to effectively communicate them, write them down. That way our new hire six months down the road can come back and read it and instantly be up to speed on where we were with that conversation. A little while back, we featured Andre Kusit in his very first podcast appearance ever to hear about his work developing Miro. Miro is a collaborative whiteboard for distributed teams and a really useful tool too. Andre shared with us some of the other products that he would write for inclusion in a remote working tech stack. You mentioned some of those tools at the moment, and I think you know there is definitely a move in in SaaS and in broader software industry to creating tools that are that are really useful for distributed teams. Is that definitely the trend that you're that you're capitalizing on? I mean, obviously, the use cases you're looking at they do tend to be the teams that get distributed first, product teams and and design teams. Yeah, absolutely. We see this trend, and uh, we as a distributed team, we are mostly on Slack, Zoom, Mira, G Suite, and Confluence. These are tools that are used among the whole company. And then we have like more than 50 other tools that are used by different teams within the company. And I like some new tools that appear, uh, like Remote HQ or Tandem, for example. These are great tools that are like remote-first tools. So they were designed for remote uh, teams who, who start their journey as a remote team or a fully distributed team. And I see this trend coming more and more where all these tools appear and they solve a lot of real problems. I was impressed recently. I, I had a meeting with Remote HQ founders mm-hmm. at Remote HQ and I was so impressed by the tool. And I, I, I've shared with them, I had like three aha moments. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like before when I discovered the tool, when we had the first session and then when I came back like next day to that tool because yeah, it was like I had the whole log of our conversation and all the assets we created during our meeting. So it was so impressive. And yeah, there are a lot of these tools com- coming into the market. As we discovered, Miro aren't just a tool for distributed teams, they are one. Here, Andre tells us why this is so important to them and why they place so much pride on sharing the pain of their customers and understanding as part of their DNA the unique challenges faced by people who use a product like theirs. And just in terms of uh, your your own sort of team, you're you're distributed. You're you know you've what four or five offices around the globe at this stage. What what sort of scale are you at, and what kind of challenges are are, are coming with that at the moment? Yeah, we we have 210 people now across four hubs in San Francisco, Los Angeles, Perm, and Amsterdam, and we have this concept of distributed headquarters in our company, as our leadership sits in every hub I've mentioned. And we find it crucial to be distributed as a team to feel the pain of our current and potential customers, what pain they have as well. And I personally think that this distributed thing should be our DNA. And for example, now we double down on building our product development team in Amsterdam Hub. And of course, we use Mira to enable processes. And we see how hard it is when your like, development team is distributed. And we call it drinking our own champagne every day. <laughs> and we do it across the whole organization. And for us, it's hard to imagine like some processes uh, without Mira, to be honest. Like uh, people really rely on Mira in, in the work. And so you deliberately 
You know, because we actually, I think, uh, took the opposite approach where we deliberately tried not to have teams split between offices for as long as possible. But you're almost deliberately saying, you know, let's have marketing people in all four offices. Let's have, you know, product people in all four offices. Is that is that the way you've approached it? So to, to clarify a little bit, we, we think that product development teams should sit together. And when I say product development teams, I mean like engineers, designers, product marketing managers, QA and like analysts, so they should be collocated. But mm-hmm. then there are teams that can sit in different offices and they anyway have to communicate between each other. Mm-hmm. So this is the way how we design our company. Of all the guests who've spoken to us about remote teamwork, the one with possibly the most interesting take on it was Laura Klein. Here she chats about building an Ocean's Eleven heist-style product team where everyone comes to the table with their own unique strength. But she says a fully remote team is easier to coordinate than a partially remote one, where decisions can be made by virtue of just who's in the room at the time. You have a great metaphor for what makes a happy, well-functioning product team. You use the concept of almost an Ocean's Eleven style heist team. Can you expand upon that a little bit? I mean, how, how do those two concepts really relate? I, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be perfect honest. I just love heist movies. <laughs> and I did a talk on this, and this was an excuse to watch a bunch of heist movies. Well done. Uh, I also considered doing it as a basketball team because I'm also a huge basketball fan. So those were my two options. I went with the heist team because, you know, I didn't want to jinx my team. Um, <laughs> the, the, the Warriors were on a roll. You didn't want to mess with it? Yeah, that's actually exactly what happened. <laughs> It was like the middle of, I was like, oh, I'm going to be doing this talk right in the middle of finals and I, in, right in the middle of the finals and I don't want to jinx them. So, um, yeah, you know, plus, I, I mean, kind of people, people might take offense to who's the Kevin Durant versus who's the Draymond Green. It gets too opinionated. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to get into that. Um, I mean, let's be perfectly clear. I would go into that for hours with you, but <laughs> I, I also like the heist team thing. I mean, okay. So, but think about your favorite heist team movie, right? You have the leader, right, who's getting the gang back together for the one big last heist after which they're all going to get to retire to the beach. Mm-hmm. Um, always happens, right? So they get the team, and it's a team of specialists, and it's a team of experts, and it's a team that is comfortable working together often, sometimes after some fighting. But generally speaking, by the time they're ready for the heist, there's a lot of trust there. And the reason that there's trust there is because everybody knows their stuff, right? And you got the leader and the leader doesn't necessarily know how to crack a safe or how to break into the, the alarm system or how to drive a getaway car. What the leader knows is how to pick the goal and the target and say, OK, this is the bank. This is when we're hitting it. This is why we're hitting it. And there's always some, you know, elaborate. Well, this is when the trucks come. And right. And like, But, you know, all the why, you know, why this is the right target right now and why this has to happen and what the deadline is. And then people kind of go off and they do some of their own stuff, but there's a lot of collaboration there too, because sometimes you need to make sure that, you know, the safe cracker is talking to the explosives expert because maybe the safe cracker needs some explosives to get into the safe. So you're working together, but really when it comes down to who's going to crack the safe, we're not all doing it together. There's one person, they are in charge, they get it done. So there's a lot of discussion and planning. And of course, it's not as iterative unless it's a, the kind of team that does a lot of bank hosts. But <laughs> unless, totally unless you're different. on uh, Fast and Furious 9, then maybe you've worked it up. By there then. you go. See, see, if you get a sequel, then you've got iterations and then you can make it better. So by Ocean's 12 and Ocean's 13, they should have gotten much better at it. Um, <laughs> anyway, again, this is it's it's not a perfect analogy, but I really do. Whenever I'm looking for a team that I would actually want to join 
it tends to be a team of people who are, I wouldn't say necessarily just specialists, but they're, they're really good at the thing that they do. And they have a lot of respect for the things that the other people do. And they basically understand what the other people do. They can give input, but they know that that's where it ends. Like I can give input on the database schema if I want to, or if I have a strong opinion, but the CTO or the tech lead makes that final call. So I'm curious, when it comes to this type of cross-functional collaboration that we've been talking about here, how is that complicated by the rise of like fully remote teams? Can a remote product team succeed in this way? And if so, what do they need to do? How do you feel about that? Well, I'm glad you asked because my CTO <laughs> currently lives in Hawaii. My Some of my engineers are in Panama. I have a product manager in San Francisco. I'm in Silicon Valley. So I have a bunch of stakeholders in various parts of the country, um, occasionally parts of the world. I occasionally have people who I have had a visual designer check in with me from Myanmar. Good luck with time <laughs> zones <was>, there. <laughs> Where, where she was traveling. Yeah, no, really like the hardest thing to, to work out was like the fact that she was in the future sometimes. Like when she was in New Zealand, <laughs> the, the, the hardest thing to, to figure out was, okay, what day is Wednesday? Yep. I forget. So that's what we do. We do it all remote. Um, I have strong opinions about that, that uh, I am happy to change if I experience something different. I feel like all remote teams work better than partially remote teams. Mm -hmm. I think, for example, having, you know, a bunch of decision makers in a room together and having one or two remote people can be really difficult because those one or two people can really get left out of discussions. It might be okay if it's, you know, you know, some of the engineers are sitting together and they can pair and that kind of thing. But really, I think that having more people remote and behaving as if everybody is remote is the best way to go if you're going to have some people remote. Because the thing that worries me the most about remote teams is that you get three or four people into a room, they're chatting, they start making decisions, they sort of move on without the rest of the team, and then the rest of the team gets left behind because right. they weren't there for that conversation. Right, and there's not a level uh, playing field there too in terms of, of building rapport and confidence and trust, I think, as well, if if you're in that mixed variable field that you're you're describing there. Exactly, exactly. And I think that it's interesting because I think that there are a lot of tools now that you can use that make it a little easier to, to share information, you know. So I'm a big fan of leveraging all the technology. I'm going to be honest, it is harder. It is. I mean, I have done I have done this where we are all literally sitting in the same office and I have done this where we are sitting all over the world and a bunch of mixes of them. And all remote has its own challenges. Like I said, my, my whole company is sort of spread out all over the country and we are often remote, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody is remote in some cases and it's harder. It's harder to build that trust. It's harder to know what's going on. It's harder to get involved and just remember that you're supposed to loop in somebody from, you know, customer service or you're supposed to loop in legal. I never forget to loop in legal. <laughs> Um, they will, cause they will remind that's a, you. That's a lesson you can learn the hard way too. <laughs> yes, that is, boy, that's not a thing you want to do a bunch of times. Um, but, uh, you know, just knowing who everybody is, is, is tougher and there, there are challenges, but I, I think lots of companies are doing that now just cause we have to. One company that have embraced having a 100% remote team is Zapier, but for them initially it was just practical. 
they learned quickly that it's essential to build good processes around communication and discipline. But once they established these elements as part of their core principles, it became clear that you can build a great company and a great team just about anywhere. You mentioned having a 100% remote team there. I know that's something that whether you're for it or against it, people have very strong views around whether or not you should have a remote team. What, what was the driver for there for you guys? For us, it was a pretty practical decision. Uh, we had moved to Bay Area around YC, and then at the tail end of that, uh, Mike, one of my co-founders, moved back to Missouri for a brief period of time. So we were working remotely again. And because we'd started as a side project, we were used to working through like these types of tools. We'd work, you know, GitHub pull requests and through chat and stuff like that. And then we started to need to hire, and. We'd never hired anyone before. It wasn't something we had experience with. And we're in the Bay Area where we don't really know anybody. And the advice is just hire old coworkers, folks that you trust and know you can work with. And so I had a buddy in Chicago who was running a Cubs message board. And this was before they won the World Series. So used to working with angsty folks, I figured, <laughs> hey, he can probably do a pretty good job at running support. Uh, we had an engineering friend back in Columbia, Missouri that I'd worked with before who I knew was really good. So we teamed up with him. And so it kind of just became remote just because that was the best pass forward for us at the time. And then we got good at it and decided, hey, like this is actually an advantage for us to do it this way. And we just kept doing it that way. When you say you got good at it, what was the biggest lesson you had to learn to reach that point? Yeah, I think building a lot of the discipline around documentation and communication upfront. So knowing how to write good readmes and how to's and all that sort of stuff and how to run meetings and give feedback and do all that sort of things were really important for us early on. And, you know, once we kind of built that into the DNA, didn't matter that, you know, small remote team, big remote team, a lot of the core principles were the same. So as someone who, you know, got their start outside of the Silicon Valley bubble, you hadn't gone to school in the area or made connections working at a larger tech firm. As far as building and running a successful startup, how did that influence your approach? What unique perspective do you think that time outside of the bubble gave you? Well, I mean, when you're in the Midwest, when you're in a city like Columbia, there is no such thing as VC. You don't like just walk out the door and get a couple hundred thousand dollars because you're a smart engineer. You have to think about what is going to build a sustainable business from the get-go. So we're thinking, how do people pay us? How do we get... Yeah, it's basically that. Like, how do people pay us? That's the signal that we're delivering market value to folks. And thinking about that from the very get-go. And we had, like, some great examples. In Columbia, there's this company, Veterans United, which is founded by two brothers who've had a handful of successful companies so far. And every single one of them, they've been 50-50 on and entirely bootstrapped. The latest one, Veterans United, has something like 1,500 employees. So wildly successful by every metric. And it was all done bootstraps, more or less. So, you know, I think seeing those examples and knowing like, hey, this is like a normal path that most businesses go through. The exception to the norm is fundraising. So that gave us kind of this insight that, yeah, you can do it. So what advice do you have for those who are building startups in a similar locale to a Columbia, Missouri? What what do they need to do to succeed? And does that involve having someone relocate to the valley? I think the biggest thing is just focus on solving a problem and figure out where your customers hang out 
and spend do what it takes to get access to your customers. It may it probably doesn't involve moving to the valley or having someone located in the valley. It might depending on the product that you're selling and the type of users that you have, but it's a very good chance that it doesn't. So, I think a lot of times like the products you're building and the customers that you're building it for who dictates where you need to be. And 9 times out of 10, uh, where you're at is just fine. What a positive thought to end on. We hope you enjoyed our bonus episode on remote working practices. If you did, we'd love if you left us a review. It really helps to spread the word. We'll be back on Thursday with our scheduled interview with customer service expert, Shep Hyken, where he'll be chatting to Intercom's Director of Product Marketing, Ali Biggs. We hope you'll join us.